2014, my family was having the worst year of our life. Basically, everything had gotten turned upside down, and we were going through some, some major difficulties. And through God's grace, we were able to have a little time of vacation. And so we rented a house that was on the, the border of the United States and British Columbia on a beautiful lake. And it was just exactly what we needed to decompress and to kind of reset our lives upon God. And during that week, we had this little deck out there, and Miranda was determined to catch a fish that week. And the crazy thing is, is the water was so clear that we could see the fish swimming all around us, and about 10 or 12 feet down below us, there are these bottom dwellers, and we could see um, bass everywhere, and we just weren't catching anything. And so one day turned into two, two turned into three, and Miranda was not catching anything. And she made this comment, if I don't catch a fish my vacation will not be complete. And so I said a quick prayer, and I said, Lord, let Miranda please catch a fish. And so I said to her, I tell you what, why don't we get in the car, we'll go to town, and we'll go to the bait shop, and we'll find out from the locals what these fish like to eat. So we did, and we went, and the gentleman told us that we need these brown lures, they're just like big fat worms, and so we got a package of those, and we went back out onto the deck, and I was putting that worm on the line, and Miranda said, Dad, look, there's a fish over there by that rock. And so I said, well, let's see if we can get it. And so we cast that line, and just as soon as that, line, that lure got in front of that fish, he just whoop, jumped down on it. And so we reeled him in, and I was telling Miranda how to hold a fish and parts of the fish, and we threw it back in. And while I'm getting the line ready again, she said, Dad, look, that fish swam right back over by that rock. And I said, well, let's see if we can catch him again. So we cast the line, and sure enough, whoop, he just went right down on that. I kid you not, Miranda and I caught that same fish a dozen times that day. He just kept going back to that same spot. And what was funny is the next morning, we, were, we got up early to, to just do a little bit more fishing before we had to get in the car and head back home. And so we go out there, and Miranda's like, Dad, there's that fish again. And so I said, well, let's see if we can catch it. So we threw that lure out in front of him, and he's just looking at it. <laughs> In our minds, we're carrying on the conversation, that fish is thinking, I feel like this is bad news for me. <laughs> but after a little bit, that fish just whoop. And so we come about four more times that morning before we had to call it quits. And it was a lot of fun. But why was that fish biting on that lure? Well, because he was enticed by it, right? <laughs> and when he bit down on it, he was dragged away. We named that fish Dory, and we don't know if that fish is still alive or not, but we hope that if we ever make it back there again, he's still hanging out by that same rock, and we'll give it another try. <laughs> well, James has a thing or two to tell us about enticement and desire and being lured away. Of course, we're in this book written by the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's been writing to these early Christians, some of the first Christians who believed the gospel about this crucified and resurrected Jesus. And they had been in Jerusalem because of persecution. They were scattered everywhere, and so their lives had been turned upside down. Everything was not the way it was supposed to be. And so James is writing to encourage them in the midst of their trials to keep certain perspectives in place, knowing that God is working all things together for the good. And so you remember back in the very beginning of this uh, chapter, James told them that your faith is being tested. And we discussed how when we encounter trials, they are meant to work a spiritual stamina in us, an endurance, a steadfastness, the character of Christ within us, so that we will become spiritually mature, that we'll be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And James told us that we're going to need wisdom if we, if we have any hope of getting there. So he tells us to ask the giving God, the generous God, for wisdom. And I think one of the reasons he told us that we're going to need that is before what he says next in this passage. Have you ever noticed how every trial can also be a temptation? Depending on the angle we take and how we receive it, the very same circumstance that is intended by God to try our faith can at the same time become a temptation for us. And so we're going to call our study today Temptations or Trials. And we're going to hear what James, this half-brother of Jesus, wants to tell us. And so, chapter 1, verse 12. Let's unpack this. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's writing to these probably really discouraged Christians, and he says, look, you are blessed if you remain steadfast under trials. And of course, that word blessed is just a general Greek word that people use in that day to refer to someone being happy or to being joyful. And oftentimes, especially in the context of the New Testament documents, when that word is used, it has the effect of one who is in that state of happiness or in that state of joyfulness because of God's favor resting upon them. You may hear in that word blessed an echo of James' brother Jesus. Remember the Beatitudes and his, his first his huge sermon that Jesus preached to the masses. And she said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is wanting people to understand that no matter how difficult things are and how upside down this world is, if you follow me and I welcome you into my kingdom, God notices and you are blessed because of it. So James takes a beatitude or a blessing and he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then he says, for, so here comes the reason. For, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. James says, you're blessed because if you stand up under the trial, you will receive the crown of life. And James almost seems to make a subtle shift here from talking about just a trial here or a trial there to the trial of life, right? If you stand under this trial of life, you will receive the crown of life. That phrase, the crown of life, is really interesting. The background is the, the Greek Olympic Games in which runners would compete and those who won the race would receive this crown. Of course, it was a fading crown and did not last. But here, James tells us that if you endure the trial of life, you will receive the crown of life. Now, it's interesting that phrase, the crown of life, is used one other time in the scriptures. And it's in the book of Revelation. And there, Jesus is um, speaking to the churches through his messenger, John. And he says, do not... Fear what they are about to, uh, what, what you are about to suffer. <laughs> How would you like that if you got that message from Jesus? <laughs> Don't fear what, fear what you're about to suffer. He says, "Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." <laughs> it's almost as if G uh, James is telling us. For the joy set before you, endure, the, uh, endure this trial, for you receive the crown of life. And Jesus is telling these early followers of his, for the joy set before you, endure this trial, even if it leads to death, and I will personally give you this crown of life. Jesus wants there to be joy 
at the horizon. And so he tells us to, to, to pursue steadfastness in this. So we've already learned in chapter 1 a couple things from, from James. The first one is this. You can encounter trials with joy knowing that God is making you more like Jesus. I mean, we spend a lot of time unpacking that. And now we learn from James that you can encounter trials with joy knowing that God himself will give you the crown of life. Now James knows it's hard to follow Jesus. And it's hard to follow Jesus when the world is against you. But he wants them to persevere and to not give up. And he says, if you don't give up, God himself, Jesus, will give you the crown of life. Now, James is, is smart enough and wise enough to know that it's, it's just not so easy. <laughs> Following Jesus is difficult sometimes. And sometimes when we hit trials, especially when our lives get turned upside down, there's temptations that present themselves to us. And so James is going to say in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Notice that James says, when he is tempted. <laughs> Just like in the previous verses, he says, um, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, when you encounter them. And now he says, look, when you are tested. And so this isn't a big note, but let's just make this point, <laughs> that the temptations are a very normal part of life, especially for those who want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. James Alec Mateer in his commentary helps us kind of understand a little bit what's going on here. He said, the same circumstances which are, on the one hand, opportunities to go forward, are, on the other hand, temptations to go back. Every trial is a temptation. Every circumstance we meet, therefore, requires a decision. Will we persevere and go forward with God? Or will we listen to the voice which suggests the easy way of disobedience and disloyalty? But where does that voice come from? James teaches us where the blame for temptation does not lie, verse 13, and where it does, verses 14 through 15. So let's look at verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. I don't know if this thought has ever crossed your mind that God is tempting me. But if it has, it's probably as old as the story of humanity. If you remember back in the garden, when God had set Adam and Eve in this paradise place and gives them the command to spread his kingdom over the face of this world, there was a test right? There's a tree that they were not to touch, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were to receive that knowledge of good and evil from God. And the tempter came in and tempted them, and they took the fruit and ate it. And then God comes to them and says to the man, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, that is God, said, who told you you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, James doesn't, I'm sorry, Adam doesn't come out and say, God, you were tempting me. But he does say that, doesn't he? I was fine <laughs> until you gave me that woman. And if he had never done that, this would never have happened. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary, puts it like this. Some who meet trials blame and attack God for them, accusing him of malice. They say he tests them too severely, pushing them towards sin so they will fail. 
when they face tests, they do not endure, they give up. Believing failure is inevitable. They do fail. And then they seem to blame, uh, seek someone to blame. God is tempting me, they say. He is leading me to ruin. James says that this is preposterous. God never singles anyone out for impossible tests. Tests they are bound to fail. God does not entice men and women to sin. To do so would be evil. That's exactly where James goes. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. It's interesting that phrase in the original language is literally God is untemptable. That is, he is not able to be tempted. That's because he is holy. He is pure. The thought doesn't even enter his mind to try to trip someone up. The way John the Apostle put it is this. This is the message that we have heard from him, that is Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no dark, twisted desires within God. There's no dark motives to tempt and and seek people's ruin. That's just not in him. The prophet Habakkuk said, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. If this is who God is, if this is his character, then it is impossible for God to tempt people with evil. And that's exactly what James says. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But still, we're suspicious. Still, sometimes we want to blame God on our circumstances. Here are, for example, some, some ways in which people have explained to me how God is at fault in their circumstances. I remember one young man saying to me, if God wants me to honor my parents and all their sacrifice, then I have no choice but to cheat in school to get ahead. A person is saying, God is tempting me. Or how about this? God has the power to make all this go away. And until he does, I'm going to withhold my heart and my worship from him. In other words, God, until you fix my life, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Or how about this one? Well, God should give me more money if he doesn't want me cheating on my taxes. Or, if God doesn't want me sleeping around, then he should not have given me such a high sex drive. I can't help it. See, there are all kinds of subtle ways that we say God is tempting me. But James says, that's not where temptation comes from. Verse 14, he wants us to know where it comes from. He says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. And just like the fish who finds the bait enticing, so too we bite in temptation because we find it enticing. You may remember the statement from Woody Allen, who said, the heart wants what the heart wants. That's actually a very biblical statement right there, even though Woody Allen is in no way, shape, or form trying to be biblical. The heart wants what the heart wants. The heart desires what the heart desires. Woody Allen, without knowing it, is actually imitating something Jesus said. In Gospel of Mark, we're told, from, Jesus said this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, 
slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus shoots straight with us. Within each one of us, there is this fountain that is producing evil desires. Roy Rogers once said, the devil made me do it. That's kind of fallen into our cultural uh, lingo, right? But that's not where James goes here. He's leaving the devil out of the conversation. He says, when each person is tempted, he is lured and enticed by what? His own evil or his own desire. James is going to later on bring up the issue of the devil and tell us to resist him, but that's not where he goes right now. There may be spiritual forces out there tempting us, enticing us, but James says, I want you to focus on something more fundamental right now. The reason you're being tempted and you find that attractive is because there's something going on within you that finds that attractive. Paul David Tripp, an author and counselor and pastor, said this, people... Locations, situations don't cause me to sin. They're where the sin of my heart gets revealed. Sin is a matter of the heart before it is ever an issue of behavior. This means that your and my biggest problem in life exists inside of us and not outside of us. It is the evil inside me that connects me to the evil outside me. So I must confess that I am my biggest problem. That's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? <laughs> I would much rather blame my wife for making me do something that I shouldn't have said or done. I'm sure that you know that experience as well. Not blaming my wife, but I mean blaming someone in, in your life. You made me do this. You chose to do this. You probably thought that was the best course at the time, but the power to do that was within you. And you did that because you found that to be the best option. James goes on and says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire. It's like that fish looking at that lure. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. James says here thinking of, of, of action and sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is telling us all of this for a couple of reasons. First of all, he wants us to know that God is always at work for our good. And if we hit a circumstance in that God may be trying us. We talked about that, how you try metal and the hotter the fire, the purer the gold, the impurities get scraped off. God sometimes allows us to be put in circumstances and situations where that trial is heated. But looked at from another perspective, that trial can become a temptation because of what's inside us. So think of it this way. <clears throat> Circumstance X, whatever that X is in your life or my life, whatever we face in the past, whatever we encounter in the future, from God's perspective, is a trial. It, it is a test. But it's meant to work perseverance in us. It's meant to work endurance in us. It's meant to work maturity and Christ-likeness in us. And the end goal of that is the crown of life. This is what God is aiming for. But in that same situation, our desire can lack, lay hold of that temptation. And because we think that's attractive, we think that's where life is, that's the best option right now, then we're enticed. We're lured and dragged away. And sin erupts. And if I could put it this way, we are crowned with death. 
I mean, that's, that's the end goal of our bad desires, interacting with this fallen world. I talked about a while ago that James doesn't bring up the issue of the devil here, um, but the spiritual entity full of malice, malevolence, works toward our, our ruin. But James is not bringing that up here. But I just want to just take a little sidetrack and go down a rabbit hole for us if I can. There's this kind of obscure doctrine that you may or may not have ever heard of. It's called the, the doctrine of concurrence. And it basically says more than one agent can be at work in any given situation aiming at different outcomes. Let me illustrate this by the story of Joseph. Remember in Joseph, he was the youngest of 12 brothers, and, and he had these visions of how his brothers and, and even his parents would bow down to him, which in the ancient world, the youngest one never said something like that, right? In fact, the only one who might say that is the oldest brother. If you're somewhere in the chain behind the oldest brother, you would never say something like that. And this began to grate on his brothers, and, and they just one day snapped, and they sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt. And through God's working in his life, and he brought him to this place where he was second in command in Egypt, behind Pharaoh himself. That was a long, hard trial he went through. But he came to this place. And as it was, there was a famine in Israel. And his family ended up coming down into Egypt, looking for food. And they had this meeting. And they thought, if our brother remembers what we did to him. He's going to kill us. And so there he is, Joseph with his brothers. And he told them these words, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's that doctrine of concurrence. His brothers were working towards evil. God was working and overworking, overriding, working toward good. There may have been even spiritual dark influences in that. There were another angle of that. So you had his brothers. You had spiritual forces at work, but God was at work as well. And so let's just say this. God is always working for our good, no matter what. And when all is said and done, we'll see how he caused all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to work together for our good and his glory. God is always working to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But he inspired these words for James to speak to his original audience and that we get the privilege of hearing so that we know that even in those trials, when they become intense and, and hard, we might be tempted to say, God is working for my ruin. God is tempting me. And James says that's the one thing we must not say. So let's just ask the question. Why do we sometimes say, think, and do bad things? And the answer to that is because the heart wants what the heart wants. It's the desires of our heart that take circumstances and turn them towards their own purposes. It's interesting, I came across this quote by Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist, he was not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he wrote a book of, um, with the title, Why I'm Not a Christian. But he said a very Christian thing. <laughs> he said, it is in our hearts that evil lies, and it is from our hearts that it must be plucked. So let me give us a couple points of application here, three in particular. If James is talking about life as a trial, then let's just say this. Let's run this race with endurance. <laughs> this is what James has been getting at since verse 2, and what he's been working at all this way through verse 15. He wants us to run this race with endurance. And James knows, like many races, there are going to be all kinds of obstacles. 
They are in our way. And yet we're meant to overcome those. The book of Hebrews tells us, let us run with endurance the race that is set for us. My friends, how's your endurance? How are you doing in this race that we call life? How are you doing in your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ as you run this marathon of life? Remember, James told us, blessed is the one who perseveres in their trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. James wants you to persevere for the joy that is set before you, for the welcome you'll receive from God, and how God himself will crown you with the crown of life. The Apostle Paul, writing to some Christians living in the city of Corinth, said, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. James, Paul, Jesus, talking about rewards, they're all trying to set before you the joy that will be there when you enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul, writing to his, his, uh, his, not his mentor, he was the mentor, writing to Timothy, his child in the face, said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if you and I, when we get to that place where we have run the race, <laughs> we can say something like this. I've kept the faith. I've stayed faithful to Jesus. There are perhaps times I wanted to give up. There are times that it was difficult. There were times I didn't know what God was up to in my life. But I kept on running. I couldn't see what was behind this obstacle, but I kept on running. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And then listen to what Paul says next. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Here he speaks about another crown. And this might be the same crown. He calls it the crown of righteousness. That might be the same crown of life, just looking at it from different angles. But he says, there's in store for me this. I want you to think about this for a second. What is the thought of Jesus placing a crown upon your head do for you? For him to say, look, I have seen everything that you've gone through. I know the trials you face. I know how some of those were temptations but you stayed faithful. You ran it with endurance. Receive this crown. What stirs within you at that thought? I don't know about you, but, but to think about that day when, when Christ might place that crown of life upon my head, it makes me want to keep going. My friends, I know it's getting harder to follow Jesus. I know we see failure in the church all over the place. We see ministers and ministry leaders that we've trusted betray our sense of trust. But keep going, my friends. Keep running that race. Yes, it is hard. Yes, sometimes we're huffing and puffing. We need like that oxygen tank with us, right? But keep running with endurance. Charles Spurgeon, that great minister of Victorian England, said one time, I do want to get a heavy crown in heaven, not to wear, but to have all the more costly gift to give to Christ. And you ought to desire the same. 
that you may have all the more honors and so have the more to cast at his feet. We sing this song, Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. If Jesus gives me that crown of life when I see him, and he says, you've endured, I want to give it right back to him and says, the only reason I endured is because you enabled me to do so. Thank you for your grace. So here's a second point of application. Let's throw off the sin which so easily entangles. You may recognize this graphic on the screen as Pilgrim, a Christian from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And the story opens up with him getting a copy of the scriptures, and he's reading about how his city, the city of destruction, is, is doomed to be overthrown. And he's heard that there is an alternate way. There's an alternate outcome. And so he sets out to find what this outcome might be. And he's carrying this burden upon his back that weighs him down. As we find out from John Bunyan, these are, these are his sins. These are his, his iniquities. These are the things that, that trip him up and so easily entangles him until he finds the cross of Christ. And as he knelt down in front of that cross, that bundle came off his back and it rolled down the hill into the cemetery. That writer of Hebrews that I quoted a while ago said, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The idea is that whatever temptations there might be there, and we're going to face them, let's face them head on and say no to them for the honor of Christ. That sin which so easily entangles. The Apostle Paul reminds us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not going to face anything that anyone else has not faced. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's that word endure again. Those trials that we face in which we sometimes see temptation, Paul tells us, don't go there. No temptation has overtaken you to where you have to sin. You have to betray God. You have to shake your fist in his face. That's not possible because God is faithful. So that when you are tempted, when you find yourself in those places where you're tempted, God always provides the way out. And let me just say this. My friends, if sometimes you find yourself being tempted, what feels like beyond your ability... Just say the name Jesus. Jesus, help me. Jesus, find me. Jesus, rescue me. And you know what? He always does. We start finding that lureless enticing. John Owen, the well-known English theologian once said, Rise mightily against the first side of sin. Do not allow it to gain the smallest ground. James, I think, would say, Yes, exactly. <laughs> Run this race with endurance and don't let the smallest sin gain ground. So the first point of application was, let's run this race with endurance. The second was, let's throw off the sin which so easily entangles. And the third point of application is this. <laughs> let's run this race looking to Jesus. I've already hinted at that. And of course, I'm riffing off Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just read that full passage. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who himself, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends here, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured his greatest trial, that is, his crucifixion upon that Roman cross. And part of the reason he was able to do that was for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? No doubt it was being crowned the king of this universe. But also that joy was to welcome you and me into his presence. That we might be with him forever and ever, reigning with him in the new creation. You see, my friends, Jesus bore the crown of thorns so that we might receive the crown of life. He went through his greatest trial so that you and I can endure our great trials as well. And we're, of course, told by that same writer of Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is as tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus faced the same kinds of trials that you and I face. But here's the thing. Because his heart was pure, and because he loved God and loved doing his will, he never found those temptations enticing. And that's why we need Jesus, my friends. We need him to make us more like himself. And so what if, my friends, at the end of your race, Jesus places that crown upon your head, he says something like this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Would that make a difference? I sure hope so. My friends, Jesus is waiting at the end of your race with the crown of life to place upon your head and to welcome you into his joy. Let that thought capture you and let it motivate you to run the race that you have set before you this week and all the weeks until Christ comes back or until he brings you home.